Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. You'll notice it is, as is often the case, a slightly idiosyncratic reading. You are welcome to take it away and compare it to your own Bible to see if you can find any of the reasons I might have done this. I'm, I'm not going to give a comprehensive exegesis of every point today, but this is 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16. These are God's words. Be ye imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you that in all things ye remember me, and as I delivered to you the traditions ye hold fast. Now I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, now the head of the woman, the man, now the head of Christ, God. Every man praying or prophesying with something on his head dishonoreth his head, now every woman praying or prophesying with uncovered head dishonoreth her head, for it is one and the same with having been shaven. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. Now if it is shameful to a woman to be shorn or to be shaven, let her be covered. For a man verily ought not to cover his head, being the image and glory of God. The woman now is the glory of man. For man is not of woman, but woman of man." For neither was man created on account of woman, but woman on account of the man. On account of this ought the woman to have authority on her head on account of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is woman apart from man, nor man apart from woman in the Lord. Just as the woman is of the man, so also is the man by the woman. Now all things are of God. In ye yourselves judge, is it seemly that a woman uncovered pray unto God? Doth not even nature itself teach you that a man, verily, if he have locks, it is a dishonor to him? Now a woman, if she have locks, it is a glory to her, for her locks are given her for a mantle. If now anyone doth think to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor the congregations of God. These are God's words. Please be seated. As we wind down our series on worship, there are a couple of topics I have wanted to finish up with. One of those is worship as warfare, which we'll have to wait for next time and may become a series of its own. I'm not really sure. But the other is the question of head coverings. I want to talk about this, not because we need to reform our church in any way on this matter, but rather because it is something that we are doing, which is nonetheless extremely countercultural. And throughout the series, although we have gone into very deep doctrines, my focus, my intention has always been to explain to you two things. Firstly, what Scripture requires, and secondly, why. I believe it is very important to understand the why as well as the what, because history shows us that when people don't understand the reasons for their practices, they are easily swayed from them into anything that seems more logical or more fashionable or simply less work. This is especially the case when what you are doing runs counter to the culture around you and especially when it is embarrassing to the culture around you. This is easy to see in the case of head coverings particularly. There's no question that far more churches would still practice head covering if they had spent the time during the early 20th century to figure out why it mattered. 
You see the same thing happening with other gendered issues in our very genderless culture. Things like male-only elders today are a, a similar kind of thing, a, an analogy to head coverings. The great era of complementarianism and the reason that it has so utterly failed to prevent the last couple of generations of Christians from embracing the ecclesiastical transgenderism of women in the pulpit is that it has given no clear explanation for why it must be men who preach. Why can women not be elders? Complementarians are very shy to give an answer to this question, and so modern Christians are easily carried away by the cultural pressure to empower women and admit them to every place previously reserved to men. It is very hard to ignore that pressure when you have nothing to push back against it with except a bare command. Well, the same thing happened with head coverings earlier in, well, the 20th century, really. And the answer to that is to explain what God commands to help people see that there are good and solid reasons behind these commands. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm suggesting we should only follow God's commands when he explains them, not at all, but the explanations do help us to stand firm in our commitment to follow his commands. We are weak, and our faith is weak, and so God, in his grace, provides us with extra help by telling us, this is why you must do what I command you to do. So today I want to look briefly, and it really will be a relatively brief look, because entire books have been written on this topic, I want to look briefly at why it is important that women cover their heads in worship while men do not. Both of those are important. I've left this until now, rather than dealing with it when we looked at the issue of clothing more generally, for three reasons. Firstly, the explanation for why women should wear this particular item of clothing and men should not is a little bit different from the general counsel of Scripture with regard to clothing more generally. So the reasons that we do not cover or we do cover are not very much like the reasons that we wear particular kinds of clothes, which is what we have looked at in the past. Secondly, because of this, it would have been very difficult to preach on head coverings without making that clothing sermon very, very long and unfocused. But thirdly, and maybe even most importantly, I have been personally involved in this particular arena in the church for several years. And in that time, I have seen a lot of things that I want to avoid from people who are trying to recover the practice of head coverings. There is a particular type of man, which I see too often, for whom head coverings are really the issue of the modern church. And this kind of man seems to think that if he can simply get his wife to cover her head in worship... That will somehow replace all the hard work that he needs to do on himself to actually become a wise and strong leader of his family. And in the same way, there is a particular kind of woman who thinks that for her, if she can just cover her head in worship, that will somehow replace all the hard work that she needs to do on herself to become a sweet and submissive helpmeet. It's a kind of magical mentality where they think that if you're just performing the right ritual using the right talisman, as it were, the veil on the head, all of the marital hierarchy and headship that these things symbolize will automatically pop into existence. And I've had such men tell me that if we could simply restore the practice of head coverings to Western churches, 
everything else would fall naturally into place. But of course, we have seen that that is not how liturgy works. Liturgy establishes patterns to live in, it is true, but it does not replace living those patterns. So while it is definitely important to cover the head in worship, and in fact we'll see just how important when we look at it in a second, I wanted to be careful to avoid putting this topic too early in our series, lest we get this idea that its overall importance is actually much more significant than it is. I don't want to get it out of proportion. Every church should be practicing head covering, even if they don't understand the reasons for it. And practicing head covering does actually help us to understand it. We've seen that um, the way that we do things helps us to understand those things rather than just understanding them in order to do them. And of course, covering the head also establishes a liturgical pattern that echoes out into all of life, which is why historically Christian women have almost universally worn head coverings through all of life, not just in worship, not because scripture requires it, but just because that was the the pattern that shaped them. But all that said, head coverings are not as critical an issue as things like sacraments, and it would be foolish to treat them as such. So let us turn to 1 Corinthians 11 and briefly examine what I take to be Paul's central argument here. I have noticed that head covering debates tend to get mired in disagreement about things like cultural customs and things like what Paul meant about the angels. And while these debates are taking place, they completely miss the whole point of Paul's logic in this passage. If I could state that logic very simply so you can understand where we're going, it is this. Only one glory should be on display in worship. Only one glory should be on display in worship. Veiling still matters in the modern day because God's glory still matters in worship. And that is what is at stake. If you look back at our passage, you'll notice that at its heart, at the very center... Paul is talking about glory. There are two different glories that he mentions there right at the center of our passage. Firstly, of course, is God's glory. And then secondly, there is man's glory. And finally, at the end of the passage, we discover also that the woman has a glory, which Paul is taking for granted in that center section. And so the passage revolves around this question of glory and of the three glories that are present in worship, God's and the man's and woman's. And I think that It is because glory is at issue that Paul doesn't actually see a need to explain directly why it is disgraceful for a woman to pray uncovered and vice versa for a man. You see, he circles around the topic a lot, but he doesn't actually spell out the central issue. It doesn't seem to need spelling out for him. He takes it for granted. He just seems to think that it's obvious. Unfortunately, it is not necessarily obvious for us because we have tin ears. So let me lay out how I understand Paul to be reasoning here, what his thinking is, and I'll chop it into small enough pieces for us to chew. Firstly, there there are basically three points. Firstly, there are three glories that are present in worship. There's God's glory, there's man's glory, and there's the woman's glory. Secondly, and this is what he does not state directly, it is scandalous for a glory other than God's to be shown off in worship. And finally, thirdly, therefore, the other two glories must be covered. 
So that's the basic logic. And I think you can probably see that it makes intuitive sense once it is laid out like this. But it will be helpful to go a little deeper. So let's look at each of these points in turn. Firstly, Paul says that there are three glories that are present here. He plainly states it in verses 7 and 15. The glories are as follows. Firstly, the glory of God, which is to say, the man. Secondly, the glory of man, which is to say, the woman. And thirdly, the glory of woman, which is to say, her long hair, or as I have translated it, her locks. What does this mean, though? Before I explain it, I want to point out something quite important. I said before that God gives us reasons for his commands to help us in our weakness. This is true. But it is also true that not seeing the reasons is not an excuse for not following the command. So imagine if none of us actually could figure out what Paul meant by describing these three glories. Would that get us off the hook for veiling? Of course it would not. What we would have to do instead is believe him that these glories exist, even though we don't understand them properly. What does it mean that man is the glory of God? Now, suppose I can't tell you. Suppose I don't know. We are still required to believe that man is the glory of God. What does it mean that woman is the glory of man? Well, that is a disgustingly offensive-sounding statement these days, isn't it? And yet it is true even if we can't explain what it means or why it is not offensive. Now, I'm not saying I can't explain it. I, I'm going to explain it. I just want you to see the logic here of how God's word works. The same is true for a woman's long hair being her glory. Dare we deny now the glory of pixie cuts and bobs for dread of the nearest Karen? Well, yes. Even if we had not the slightest clue why, we would have to accept on faith that Paul did know why, and he told us about it in order for us to believe it. Pixie cuts may be cute, but they are not glorious. So even if we don't understand what glory means here, we have discovered that it is not the same as cuteness, so that's something. It's also really important to see that this is about glory, if this is about glory, then nothing that Paul says here can possibly be a mere cultural convention. That's the standard argument these days. Well, long hair meant X in Paul's culture. Fill in the blank, however you want, whatever X is to you. This is what long hair meant in Paul's culture. But that doesn't mean that in our culture, and so therefore this command no longer applies. But that obviously won't fly. Glory is not culturally relative. What would it mean that man was the glory of God in ancient Corinth, but no longer today? It's nonsense. These are creational statements, creational truths about our nature, describing matters of fact about the design of mankind in relationship to the eternal, unchanging God. They are not matters of fashion in first century Roman society. Well, okay, but as it turns out, we actually do have plenty of information in Scripture to help us understand what Paul is saying here, what it means to say that something is the glory of something else. We can actually understand what it means for man to be the glory of God, for woman to be the glory of man, and for the hair to be the glory of woman. So what does Scripture say about this? Well, firstly, what is glory? To use the language of my children, 
I'll give you a simple definition here. Glory is that which is most majestical or splendor furious about a thing. It is what we think of when we ask what is great about something. It is the thing that deserves the highest honor. When the Old Testament authors considered God, for instance, one thing that was especially great about him was his strength and power. And the heavens declare the glory of God, David tells us, by showing the work of his hands at Psalm 19.1. Or Psalm 29.1 bids the angels to ascribe unto Yahweh glory and strength. So glory and strength are being paralleled here. And in the same way, Exodus 14.17, God speaking to Moses says, And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall go in after them, and I will be glorified through Pharaoh and through all his host, through his chariots and through his horsemen. How will he be glorified? Well, by crushing them with a sea. I won't multiply examples, or we'll be here all day, but here is one more. First Chronicles 16 says, Sing unto Yahweh all the earth, show forth his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. So God's works, his might, his power, is what is most weighty, most worthy of honor, and most glorious about him. But what does it mean then for something to be the glory of a person? We've got the glory of the man and the glory of the woman. We understand God's glory, at least to some extent now. We'll have to see how that relates in a second. But consider a familiar, a familiar example. You guys probably are familiar with this from Proverbs. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair or their hoary head. That's Proverbs 20, 29. So here we have two glories that are being rhymed, not rhymed as in the, uh, the, the sound, but rhymed in the idea. It's a parallelism. What is, what is especially great about, about young men, it is saying, what is especially noteworthy, especially worth celebrating, is their strength. And conversely, with old men, it is their gray hair, which is not, of course, to say that their gray hair looks amazing. It is rather to say that what it represents is majestic, their wisdom, a life well-lived. And Scripture contains many such examples. Here are a few others. The glory of pastures, are they flowers? The glory of a house is wealth. The glory of rulers is the number of their people and also their ability to search out hidden wisdom. Now, this last point shows us a very important idea you can have more than one glory. It is no contradiction to say the glory without intending to say the only glory. For instance, although the Old Testament often describes God's glory in terms of might, as we've seen, that is not the only glory that he has. According to our passage in verse 7, one of his important glories, maybe his um, most foundational glory on earth, is man. And that makes good sense because I don't know how often you guys read Ezekiel's visions every day for your entertainment perhaps, but do you remember how Ezekiel describes God's glory in his vision? In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 to 28, it says, Above the expanse that was over their heads, that's the, the cherubs, was the likeness of a throne, 
as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was a likeness as the appearance of a man upon it above. And I saw, as it were, glowing metal as the appearance of fire within it round about from the appearance of his loins and upwards. So the upper part of him is glowing metal. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, his legs, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around about him. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness around about it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. So in Ezekiel chapter 1, the glory of Yahweh is explicitly described as being the likeness of a man. Why would that be? Well, that's really not hard to explain. It's not a trick question. Man is made as God's image. Man is made to directly represent and serve God. So naturally, man is made as God's glory. The thing that is most celebrated and admired about God here on earth is man. Paul himself in our passage describes this glory in terms of man's origin and purpose, his created design. This is very clear if you simply follow his explanations in verses 7 to 9. For a man verily ought not to cover his head, being the image and glory of God. The woman now is the glory of man. For man is not of woman, but woman of man. For neither was man created on account of woman, but woman on account of the man. So we see here that for Paul, glory and origin and purpose and authority are all bound up with each other. So when people accuse me of saying that I'm missing the point here, that Paul's chief concern is authority and hierarchy, no, I am not missing the point. Paul does not distinguish those things. While many things can be a glory, he has in mind the glory which is tied up with honor and hierarchy which comes out of the purpose of a thing, the thing it was made for. That's why he starts by saying that the head of every man is Christ. He knows that it is glorious to rightly represent the one for whom you were made, to fittingly serve him. And he is concerned to preserve this glory in worship, ensuring its correct place in the hierarchy in the creational authority structure that is embedded in men and women or embodied in men and women. Uh, That's maybe a little bit abstract, so let me try to lay this out for you. Here is what Paul is saying. While woman originates from man and is made for man's sake, and hence she is man's glory, man in turn originates from God and is made for God's sake, and hence is God's glory. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the man Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, into whose likeness we are all being conformed. When we think of God, especially with respect to his rulership of the earth, the thing which we most naturally celebrate, the thing most worthy of honor is his image, man. But you'll ask now a very natural question. Why then is a woman the glory of man? Is she not made in God's image? I've had this argument many times. There are some men on the internet who really, really want women to not be made in God's image. They really want to say that, in fact, it is the essence of feminism 
the essence of woman worship to say that Eve was made in God's image because that makes God a girl. Well, Scripture won't let us say that. Paul knows that Genesis explicitly describes man and woman, plural, as the image of God. And so he does not say here, he's very careful with his language, he does not say here that she is not the image of God. He does not say that she is the image of man. He says that she is the glory of man. He distinguishes image and glory. These are related, but they are not identical. He does not want us to think that because woman is the glory of man, she is therefore not the image of God. Man is the image and glory of God. Woman is the glory of man, not the image and glory of man. Now, there is a sense, certainly, in which she is the image of man, because image and glory are bound up. We see that she was made from the man in Genesis. And we see in Genesis 5.3 that when Seth is made, he is described as being in the image of Adam. So there is a sense, certainly, in which woman is the image of man, yet Genesis clearly ascribes God's image to her also. She is a kind of reflected image, being made for the man rather than directly for God. Man being made to reflect and serve God is God's glory. Woman being made to reflect and serve man is man's glory. And this is why it is so natural to use the symbolism, as my daughter will like to point out to you, of sun and moon for men and women, as we see in Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. If you understand the reflected glory of the moon... You understand something of the difference in how men and women are God's image. This is very difficult for modern ears. And I don't really want to get too deep down the rabbit trail. I'm not really trying to preach on the image of God here. What I want to focus on, in fact, is that being made God, uh, being, being man's glory truly is glorious. Scripture does not relegate women to a lackluster second place in terms of glory. In fact, Paul's whole argument makes no sense if women aren't extremely glorious because he is saying, in effect, that their glory can compete with God's. As a matter of simple embodied experience, we all know that women are the glory of men. They are the thing that when considering humanity as a whole, mankind, men themselves are most inclined to celebrate. If presented with the choice of saving a man or a woman, we save the woman. We consider them of greater value. One woman's face launched a thousand ships, so we are told. I mean, it probably didn't literally, but we think that the, the epic is worth retelling in part because of this detail. Another woman's face is compared by Shakespeare to a summer's day. Just as the beauty of the lily is the glory of the pasture, so the beauty of the woman is the glory of the man. Stated succinctly, when we think of God's presence on earth, the thing most worthy of honor is man. But when we think of man's presence on earth, the thing most worthy of honor is woman. Far from a reflected glory being a lesser glory, what it actually means is that there is a sense in which woman is the pinnacle of creation in a way that man never could be. What then of the long hair? If we understand man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man, what about the hair as the glory of woman? Again, I think this is actually self-explanatory. If you just take a moment to think about it 
it starts to make sense and you don't get tied in knots and caught up in your own head. Think about, for instance, beauty parlors. We don't call them beauty parlors for nothing and they're not populated by women for nothing. The cliche of models in commercials swinging their heads in slow motion to display their, dare I say it, glorious locks is no mere coincidence. And this is not a statistical aberration. I once ran a poll on our Facebook page for It's Good to Be a Man. I said, men, suppose you are going on a blind date. You can choose to go with one of two women. The only thing you know about either of them is that one has long hair and the other has short. Who do you choose? Now, this was not a, this wasn't a massive poll, but we had 663 votes, which I think is probably pretty representative. So it's not a small number. What would you guess the percentages look like? 95% long hair. Of course, a woman's long hair is her glory. In fact, there is a fascinating pattern in scripture that links hair with clouds and that then with the glory cloud of God. But I'm not going to divert on that now. You can, you can look into that later. Suffice to say, hair really is a glory. That is why the hair is the emblematic thing that feminists deface when they seek to reject the beauty of femininity. You know, the blue-haired feminist? What other kind of feminist is there, right? If you want to have a cliched feminist, it's the blue-haired feminist. What is the reason that she not only cuts her hair short, but goes to the trouble of making it into an unnatural color? It is because she understands, as we all do on some level, that her hair is her glory. She understands what hair means and what cutting it off means and making it a weird color means. Feminists have much that they wish to communicate about their opinions of God's design and they wish to communicate it with everyone. It is disgraceful, as nature itself teaches, for a woman to cut off her hair because one does not treat one's glory with disdain and dishonor. It is equally disgraceful, generally speaking, and there are exceptions which I won't go into here, like if you look at the Nazarite vow, for instance, there's definitely a a theme of glory involved there. But generally speaking, it is inglorious for a man to wear his hair long like a woman because he is, as it were, stealing the woman's glory. Because his hair is also glorious when it's long, it is not right for him to have long hair. And this leads to the second point that Paul makes. It is scandalous for a glory other than God's to be shown off in worship. Now, as I said, he does not make this directly. He is assuming it. This is the assumption that he makes, which we miss. And we miss it, I think, because we don't take seriously what he says about glory, and we don't connect it to worship because we don't understand worship very well. In the Western church, I think that we have largely lost the idea of worship as entering the heavenly court. Hopefully we at Redwood have not lost that idea after the the sermon series that I've been preaching. We've seen over the past months that worship really is entering the heavenly court. We come into heaven, to the heavenly Jerusalem in worship, to angels in festal array, to the righteous made perfect, and to God the judge of all. And two of the things that we do while we are in heaven, as we now are, are we pray and we prophesy. Remember, when we looked at music, you remember how we saw that Scripture uses the term prophesy to refer to singing? Scripture and uh, prayer and prophecy are things which women are involved in corporately during worship. 
They may not speak, they may not read, they may not preach, but they do pray and prophesy. That being the case, the natural question to ask is, whose glory should be on display in the heavenly court? Whose glory is worship intended to magnify? I trust that we can all agree that it is God's. The cherubs and the elders before the throne continually cry out in worship of God's glory. Holy, 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 they say. And what do the elders do in Revelation 4 when they cry out in worship? They cast their crowns before God. Why do they do that? We think of crowns as symbols of rulership. But in scripture, it is the scepter, which is the symbol of rulership. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and unto him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Crowns are not a symbol of rulership in scripture, at least not directly, but rather of glory. Isaiah 28.5, for instance, speaks of a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. Hebrews 2.9 tells us that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor. And 1 Peter 5.4 tells us that we will likewise receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. In other words, the crown only represents rulership because it represents glory and kings are glorious. Now, I think you'll see that quite easily, in one sense, worship just is glorification. The elders throw their crowns before God because they are giving their glory to God. When we come before God and praise his greatness, we just are glorifying him. That's what it means to glorify God in that context, is to praise him, to magnify his greatness, to draw attention to it. So if it is critical to worship correctly, as we have seen, it is certainly critical to glorify God correctly. We know that God is jealous for how we worship him. And that does not overlook, that he does not overlook idolatry or blasphemy. And we have seen that a man wearing long hair, which is created to be the woman's glory, is stealing what rightly belongs to her. So by the same logic then, bringing the glory of man, that is the woman, into worship, which is expressly for God's glory, would be stealing what rightly belongs to God. And a woman bringing her glory, her hair, would be doing the same thing. So put another glory on display in worship is a reversed mirror image of bringing God a blemished lamb. You see where I'm going with that? You, you flip the logic. In both cases, if you bring God a blemished lamb or if you bring another glory into God's presence when his glory is meant to be on display, what we're basically saying is we think this is worthy of you, God. The lamb is good enough for you. Well, this other glory is good enough to occupy the same space as yours. But God does not agree. The way in which we worship matters to have another glory on display. A glory that simply by merit of being present is competing with his. Suggesting itself as worthy of appearing alongside him. It's actually a kind of embodied blasphemy. And a glory that is present alongside his also suggests... It implies that we may worship the creature rather than the creator. And so it is a kind of implied idolatry. You can't have blasphemy and idolatry going on in the worship of God. And this is why Paul devotes such a surprising amount of space to discussing this. 
we think, why did he have to devote half of a chapter to this question? Because it's important, and he wants his readers to understand why we must worship in this way. So he concludes, the glories that aren't God's must be covered in worship. He's very concerned here to steer a path between two ditches. There are two possible ways that you could deal with this that would be completely unacceptable to Paul. On the one hand, you could just have any glory on display in worship. Obviously, that's not okay. But on the other hand, you could say, well, since we're another problem here, we'll just exclude them from worship. Well, you can't do that. Women are co-heirs with Christ. And so the natural solution, which he implements as a kind of standard operating procedure in all the congregations of God, you see that last verse, what he is saying is, there is no other practice than head coverings in any of the churches. This is our standard operating procedure for women to veil themselves. Because this solves both problems. It's very simple. It covers women's long hair, it conceals their glory, and at the same time, it covers them, concealing their glory, uh, concealing man's glory. And so it is going to satisfy the conditions that are required to come into God's presence. So this is why we practice veiling in worship at Redwood. Now, obviously, I have not set out to answer every question that we could ask. Many of these kinds of questions that people have are simply actually not answered in the text. You see, for instance, that Paul here is not concerned with giving specific instructions about the practical application of veiling. He doesn't say that you must use this particular kind of veil, it must be this particular length, it must cover this particular percentage of hair. He doesn't go into any of that. Rather, he wants to explain the central reason for covering the hair, the important principle that we must satisfy, however we go about doing it. So that has been my concern as well. The application is really left to our wisdom We are allowed to implement head coverings in whatever way will ensure that God's glory is the exclusive focus of worship, and every other glory is appropriately covered so that his alone may be seen and praised and magnified. Let us sing our next song appropriately, Fairest Lord Jesus.